welcome back to the Earn It Podcast. Howard Rundle on the line. Mr. Rundle, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure to be with you, Austin. Thanks. So, give us a little introduction on yourself, who you are, where you grew up, where you went to school, etc. Well, I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1946. One of the early... uh, Now I'm forgetting what they call the uh, babies after the Second World War, but in any case, Born after the Second World War, my dad was an army guy with uh, combat engineers in Burma. Uh, born in Pittsburgh, basically grew up in Ohio. Uh, when I graduated from college in 1969, I uh, joined the Navy to fly, and I was fortunate to earn my wings. I flew. First as a flight instructor in uh, T-28s for two years, and then I flew on active duty for three years on, on P-3 C model with a BP-49 out of Jacksonville, Florida. In 1976, I left active duty and basically moved to Michigan in a roundabout way, joined the reserves out at Selfridge, BP-93. I was there from at 76 until the end of my uh, CO tour in 1989. During that time in 1977, I was hired by General Motors as a corporate pilot. So I flew for GM for just short of 30 years. At the same time, I was flying in the reserves for 22 of 30 years. I finished out my time in the reserves, various jobs. Uh, I was assigned to the USS Eisenhower, the second of the Nimitz class carriers, and uh, I spent three years at the uh, five-sided wind tunnel in Washington, D.C., otherwise known as Innovent. So that was, I had a great run in the Navy. I had many good opportunities. You know, you work hard, but you only can do as much as you can with the opportunities that you're given. So I was fortunate to have been given lots of good opportunities in the Navy, and then, of course, the job at GM was, uh, I always say, be working for a living. So it was a great job. Retired from the Navy in 1999, retired from GM in 2006. And right after I retired from GM in 2006, I started flying with the Yankee Air Museum. Randy Houghton is a good friend of mine. He and I flew together in reserves for many years. He was always after me to join the Yankee Air Museum and fly with him, but I told him my weekends are too precious now because I spend so much time with the reserves and then with GM. So I said, when I'm when I'm done with all that, then I'll start flying with the Yankee Air Museum. And so I have. So I've been flying with them now. This is 13 years flying. That's been a great bonus opportunity, privilege to fly the airplane and tell its story. So what was, what was the process like to becoming a Navy pilot? Tell me a little bit about that. I missed the first part of your question. Tell me a little bit about how you became a P3 pilot. All the stories are pretty much the same. I First of all, my interest in flying started when I was a very young boy. 
I had an uncle who was a bombardier navigator on B-24s during the war. And even though he wasn't a pilot, every airplane that flew over the house, I thought it was Uncle Johnny flying. So I became infatuated with flying just from that. Uh, he retired in the middle of 1960s, but he had, they had children about the same age as myself, my brother, and my sister. And we envied those kids because they got to live on Air Force bases. They lived in England. It just seemed like a, a magical way to spend a life. So that always got me interested in flying. Uh, my dad and I, in fact, if you can see behind me, uh, F4U Corsair on the wall up there. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. That's a model that my dad and I built when I was probably no more than 12 years old. Now, I say my dad and I built. My dad actually built a great percentage of it. But it's interesting that it still exists today. And the only reason it exists today is the fact that we never could afford an engine for it. Because if you have an engine for it, you're going to fly it and eventually it's going to crash. But we never had an engine, so it has survived all those years but we flew radio or not radio control line airplanes that was a lot of fun so with wanting to fly i never thought about joining the navy never ever i was always going to fly with the air force right? when i was a junior in college youngstown university in youngstown ohio the air force recruiters came to the school and i went up to them and i was interested they were offering the opportunity to take the uh, aptitude tests and they asked me, well, what year are you in school? And I said, I'm a junior. They said, well, you can't take it until you're a senior. So this was uh, 1968. I said, okay. Well, the next week or so, the Navy recruiters came picking up the residuals, I guess, people that were left. I went up to the desk and I said to the recruiter, I guess I can't take the test. He looked at me and said, why is that? I said, because I'm only a junior. He said, you can take the test. So I took the test, and before I knew it, I was standing there with my hand up, and I was in the Navy. So started flight training in uh, June of 1969, got my wings in February of 1971. And uh, because the Vietnam War, Air War was winding down at that point in time, they didn't have a lot of places to send new guys with wings. So I was fortunate to be sent back as a flight instructor. So that, that was a great opportunity. So I flew on a T-28 for two years as a flight instructor and then got a set of orders to Jacksonville to fly the P-3. So that's the roundabout story of how I got into flying the P-3s. So what types of missions were you flying in P-3s? Well, the P-3 was primarily an anti-submarine warfare aircraft, ASW. And uh, it was introduced to the fleet in 1962. And its first major missions were flying during the Cuban Missile Crisis. In fact, it was P-3 that actually discovered the Russian missiles on the ships. So that's the type of missions that they flew, surface and subsurface surveillance. Uh, now, when I was based in Jacksonville, we deployed to the uh, Eastern Atlantic, into the Mediterranean, up into the North Sea, down around Africa. We were basically what we called East Coast sailors. We flew on the east side. Uh, west Coast sailors were those who flew west. And uh, also the P-3s were used in Vietnam. I was never in Vietnam because basically I was an East Coast sailor. But the missions that we flew, during the Cold War, uh, we like to think we're very real missions because we were, the Russians were basically steaming up and down the, off the east coast of the United States, targeting U.S. cities with their uh, ballistic submarines. And uh, it was a very real situation. And our job was part of a network to track these submarines. And so through a 
variety of ways they would know that a submarine is coming out of the North Sea fleet with the Russians. And when we knew they were coming, we would set up what we called barriers, which was basically a long string of sonoboys. Sonoboy is a listening device, drops down onto the ocean surface. The bottom drops out, it drags out a long wire microphone and basically just sits there waiting to hear submarine noises because submarines make noise, a lot of mechanical noise. So we'd set up a barrier of those so from the submarine would come through narrow gaps of water up in the North Sea. The Faroe Shetland Gap is a fairly narrow space of water. We would catch them going through there. Once we had contact with them, we would track them right down into the Atlantic. And at some point in time, a U.S. attack submarine would latch on to them. And if you've seen the movie Hunt for Red October, that's a really good uh, replication of what anti-submarine warfare was all about. So if you haven't seen that, I recommend it. It's really well done. We did a lot of surface surveillance, especially when we were deployed to Sigonel of Sicily in the Med, because the Russians at that same time during the Cold War had a large fleet of uh, ships and submarines in the Mediterranean. And so we were always tracking them and they were always tracking our submarines and ships. I, I don't want to call it a game, but in some ways that's exactly what it was. Was a game. Did you ever intercept any Soviet subs? Oh, yes. We had a good success locating and tracking submarines out. It's like fishing. Every time you go out fishing, you don't catch a fish. And there's plenty of missions we'd go out for 10 hours and not get so much of, as a single hit on a submarine. But other times when we had a good datum to go to, pretty well the position, we had better luck that way. Another place... When the Russians would come into the mid, they had to pass through the Straits of Gibraltar, fairly narrow stretch of water. And so we would set up barriers there as well. So once, you, once they go through the barrier, we could get contact with them. So we had, we had a good success tracking the Russian submarines. Did you ever have to employ any weapons against one? No, there never was a, an attack made by a P-3 on a Russian submarine, thank goodness. We were capable of doing it, and when we flew our patrols, we did not carry any ordnance. It was strictly, if you want to call it peacetime, it was open ocean surveillance. The reality was if the flag would have gone up, it wouldn't have been us that were shooting at him anyhow. It would be that attack submarine that was trailing behind them. Submarine's worst enemy is another submarine. That's all there is to it. So what were the missions like? Exciting? Dull? Tell me a little bit about that. That's a good question because maybe I'm just easily entertained, but I can honestly say I was never bored on any of the flights that I flew because there was always something going on, especially uh, when we were operating in the Med because there was a lot of Russian surface ships there as well. So we'd be given an area to search, and that's what we would do. If it was a submarine, we're looking for the area could be a wide area search or maybe it would be fairly localized. Oftentimes, we would be sent out to relieve an airplane that already had contact on a Russian submarine. So it would be basically like a relay race. They would hand the contact off to us, and then we would continue to track. The missions were about nine to 10 hours long. The airplane carried about 14 hours worth of fuel and a crew of 12, five officers and seven enlisted personnel. Each especially the listed personnel, each one had a specific 
job associated with the anti-submarine function of the airplane. So as I said, I, I was never bored. And it was exciting when we would make contact with the Russian submarine because that was what we went out to do. And it was gratifying when, when we could actually do it. And again, I would lie if I said it happened every time. It did not happen every time. But that's made it all the more sweet when it did. So how did you find the P-3 flying? Like, how was the performance of the airplane? The P-3 was a great flying airplane. Lockheed builds uh, very strong airplanes. Uh, the airplane was based on the Lockheed Electra airliner of the 1950s, but it was never an airliner. It was built from the ground up as a P-3. It was a little shorter than the Electra, but weighed a lot more. And it had uh, more horsepower than the Electra. Each of those General Motors Allison turboprop engines developed 4,600 horsepower. So if you do the math, that's what, 1,860 or so, 18,600 horsepower. And the airplane had a great power response. There wasn't anything the airplane could get you into that you couldn't get out of by just leveling the wings and adding power. It had great roll performance. The airplane had relatively short wings, which made it a little bit of a rough rider in turbulence, but because it had a relatively short wing, it was a very maneuverable. And we did a lot of flying, especially in the med, at 200 feet, low over the water, uh, taking photographs of Russian combatants. That was a lot of fun because it was sort of like air show time, you know. There was no restrictions. Go as fast as you want, as low as you want, and take pictures of the ships as you went by. In fact, there was a Russian anchorage on the north side of Libya, and they knew we were coming. It wasn't any big surprise, but we would always try to sneak up on them just at the crack of dawn and catch them in the first daylight and see what we, pictures we could get of the uh, things on the deck. Oftentimes, the only thing we saw on the deck were sailors sunning themselves. So... <laughs> That's what sailors do. So walk me through a typical mission for you. Well, a typical mission would start with a three-hour pre-flight. Uh, the uh, tactical crew, which meant the, uh, the pilot in command, uh, co-pilot, the uh, red guys in the back, naval flight officers, one was called the tactical coordinator, and he did exactly what his name uh, implied. He's the one that coordinated all the tactical employment of the airplane. And then we had a, a navigator as well. And they would attend the briefing along with a couple of the critical enlisted personnel. So that uh, classified briefing took about an hour or so. And then the rest of the time was spent just pre-flighting the airplane, getting all the systems up. Remember, this is 40 years ago. So things like a GPS and the fast computers just did not exist. So it took a while for things to come up online. So after that three-hour pre-flight, we would take off and fly a nine to 10-hour mission and then come back for an equally long three-hour debrief. So these were long days. And we flew around the clock. So you could be taken off at eight o'clock at night and flying right into the morning. Or some of them, they would have a 3, 3 a.m. takeoff. So that meant you started the pre-flight at midnight. That was a long day. Because no matter what you do, you can't sleep much unless you're on that shift all the time, and you wouldn't be. So from that standpoint, those, those flights were uh, not exhausting, but they were definitely tiring. But the good thing is we were all 40 years younger, which made a big difference. 
They couldn't get old guys like us to do that now. We'd fall asleep. So how did you transition from active duty to the reserves? Well, that was pretty simple. Uh, and it was fortunate because when Ronald Reagan was the president, money was no object for the military. And they were greatly expanding the reserves to counter the Russians. And so they stood up reserve squadrons in uh, Philadelphia, Chicago, up in Brunswick, Maine, out in California, and they stood up one in Detroit. Well, I uh, when I came when I got off active duty, I affiliated with the reserves right away. Even though we were uh, we had gone home to Ohio after we got off active duty, simply because we never lived there. We had a, a little girl. My wife was pregnant at the time, so wanted to be near the family. So. We went back to Ohio, but I affiliated with reserves up in Selfridge. So for two weeks a month, I would go up to Selfridge and do what we called special active duty. And basically, the P-3 squadron at Selfridge was transitioning from the Grumman S-2 tractor. Are you familiar with that airplane? Yeah, a little bit. And uh, they were transitioning from that to the P-3, which was a major transition. Well, normally on active duty, they would send those pilots to a formal transition school, but not so much in the reserves. There were only three plane commanders in the squadron. I was one of them when we got started. And we were basically running a transition course there at Selfridge on our own, qualifying people, both uh, pilots and also the guys in the back. So they were welcoming people from active duty with experience because they just didn't have that many of them especially in a place like Detroit. Detroit just didn't attract that kind of guys. Down in Jacksonville where the squadrons were based, there's a reserve squadron there and was a waiting list to get in that squadron, the same way out in California. But at Selfridge, we were uh, beating the bushes for pilots. And that's why we spent so much time transitioning guys because we not only transitioned S2 guys, but there were uh, three guys in the squadron we transitioned from Sky Raiders, of all things, the A-1 Sky Raider. We had a couple of helicopter guys that would transition. We always, or I always said we were without any adult supervision, which was good because, you know, you got a job to do, you just get it done. And we had good success at it. So I guess that's the proof in the pudding to have success at it. So the reserves, reserves was a great thing for me because uh, it gave the opportunity to stay in the Navy and ultimately to do things that I never would have been able to do on active duty. Selfridge, I became a, a big fish in a small pond. I'd have been somewhere where there are a lot more other P3 guys that might not have been that way. But again, I said I had some great opportunities because I became that big fish in a small pond. Yeah, I have another guy. I'm going to talk to another ex-Navy guy who flew S2 trackers to build proficiency time before he could go and fly the CH-46 and the CH-2 and the CH-3 um, on active duty. Well, back in the day, most air stations had a, they called the duty S2, and that was a station bird. They used it for logistics, flying, short range stuff. But back then, in order to get your flight paid, you had to fly I think four hours a month or something like that. That was never an issue with me because we always flew way more than that. But that, those guys used those S2s for getting that flight pay and for 
maintaining some proficiency. So tell me a little bit about getting involved with the Yankee Air Museum. Well, I owe that all to my good friend Randy Hutton, uh, who, as I explained to you, encouraged me to join the Yankee Air Museum. I'll say every pilot, maybe not so true anymore, but every pilot I ever knew had this C-47 DC-3 on their bucket list that they wanted to fly. And to have a chance not just to fly the airplane, but to ultimately get type-rated in it and fly as pilot command, I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. So I jumped at that opportunity. Uh, I lived fairly close to the airport here in Northville, and so when flights would come up, they needed somebody, they would call me because they knew pretty much I would be ready to go. I was retired at that time, so I didn't have any obligations like some of the pilots still flying don't have that luxury. So I, I'm a big uh, student of history, and uh, being able to fly such a historic airplane and to talk to people about the history of the airplane even before it became hairless Joe, that was just a, a different tack. But even just talking about the airplane as a straight C-47, that was a big opportunity. Now, in the wintertime, my wife and I go to Pensacola, Florida. And we have a home down there that we rent year-round. And the whole focus of that is to uh, be associated with the Naval Aviation Museum there in Pensacola. That's really the reason why we chose Pensacola, because of the museum. So I'm a docent at the museum. Uh, I'm flying with the C-47 is a perfect segue into that because we have a R-4D, the Navy version of the C-47 DC-3, hanging from the overhead in the museum. So I always enjoyed talking to people about the airplane, especially from the standpoint that I've actually flown it. Not that one, but the same type of airplane. Yeah, I need to get down there someday. I hear it's quite the museum. Yeah, it really is. It's spectacular. It's, it's way smaller than the Air Force Museum. But uh, we like to think it's more intimate. There's no museum on the planet like uh, the Ubar Hazy Museum in Washington, D.C. That's all there is to it. But as far as what, the history that we're trying to portray, history of naval aviation, uh, it's a wonderful museum. Now, before the COVID hit, our airplanes sat out in the open in the museum. They were not roped off or anything else. So people who come to the museum could actually touch the airplanes. And to those of us who are docents, we thought that was a very important thing to be able to physically connect with history because we have a couple airplanes that have seriously historic backgrounds. Well, when the COVID hit, they were directed to stop doing that. Now they've ordered the airplanes off. Uh, of course, you can still see them, but there's no longer getting up close and touching for either the visitors or the docents. I'm hoping that when the all clear is given with this disease, if that's ever, that they'll go back to the way it was. But the truth is, I'm not too optimistic about that. But even saying that, it's still a great museum. So tell me a little bit. Compare and contrast the P-3 and the C-47. Uh, let's see. Without offending the C-47, it's like a Mack truck to a sports car. I mean, the P-3 had hydraulic boosted controls. So as I said, it had great roll rate. Uh, you could fly the airplane in any kind of weather. Wind didn't make any difference. It was a great flying airplane. Again, a lot of power. 
this C47, even though it's way slower, uh, it requires, at least from my perspective, a lot more forethought in flying it because uh, you have to just watch out for the wind and things like that. It, it doesn't have the roll rate even close to what the P3 did, but those airplanes were designed to take off, fly in a straight line with airline passengers and land. That's, that was their mission. And that airplane was revolutionary when it came out in 1935. So the fact that it doesn't fly like a P3 is really not a fair comparison because it's such totally different technology. C-47 first flew in 1935 and P-3 operationally first flew in 62. So that's just three years short of 30 years difference in technology and engines. C-47 has 1,200 horsepower on an engine. The P-3 had 4,600 horsepower on an engine. Big, big difference. But I enjoy flying the C-47 every bit as much as I enjoyed flying the P-3. It's just different. There are no bad flying airplanes. Some are just better than others. Is there one C-47 flight or air show that sticks out to you? Oh, boy. That is, that's a good question. Uh, I think the uh, air show is among the most interesting is the one at Reading, Pennsylvania each, uh, I think that's in June. Of course, it was canceled this year. Besides an air show, it's a gigantic World War II reenactment. And it's as much about army guys and tanks and all that kind of stuff as it is about airplanes. And so to be part of that, to be doing flybys and doing that kind of stuff with the airplane, that was pretty, pretty neat to do. Another good air show, they stopped doing it this year. It was the first year they canceled it, and I don't think they're going to do it again. It was the one up at Gaylord. I'll call it a mom and pop air show, although it wasn't that. The whole city supported it. But that was a lot of fun. It was good the press coverage and uh, sort of like me back in Selfridge, big fish in a small pond. The C-47 was a big fish in a small pond there too. attracted a lot of attention. I actually like the smaller venues than the bigger ones because especially in the Midwestern part of the country, you've got some real patriotic people come out and that's really uh, satisfying to be talking to people. And I don't think I've ever been to an air show where somebody didn't come up, an older gentleman would come up and say how he flew on the C-47 back in the day. Of course, from that point on, it's not me talking to him, it's him talking to me. That's, that's a great thing. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Like even with the B-25 crew, there's, I think he's a top turret gunner that lives out in Pennsylvania that came to the Reading, Pennsylvania show one year um, before I joined the crew. But it's, it's really cool to connect with the veterans and hear some of their stories. Oh, yeah, that's for sure, because I often say those of us that are flying in the modern era, and that's the era that I've been flying in since I got started, we're pretenders compared to what those guys are doing. Um, just like comparing the P3 with the C-47, much better flying airplane, much more power, better instrumentation. Even 40 years ago, those guys flying the C-47 DC-3s back in the day in all kinds of weather with absolute minimal navigation stuff and anti-icing capabilities. My hat's off to them. So whenever I have an opportunity to talk with one of those guys, it's like 
getting to talk to a Hall of Fame baseball player in my mind. Sadly, fewer and fewer of those guys are around. Right. So what's next for you? <laughs> what's next for me? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, well, I, this, this will sound funny, but my goal is to become a UFO. And you say, what's a UFO? Have you ever heard of the UFOs? Identified flying objects, right? <laughs> well, that's one definition for UFO. But there's actually an organization, and look this up, you'll laugh. It's the United Flying Octogenarians. These are guys who are still flying past their 80th birthday. So I have six more years to go. That's my goal is to become a UFO. I, I hope my God is kind to me, allows me to get to that point. But, you know, at this point in time, I don't want to say I don't have goals, but I'm just enjoying things as they come. I enjoy flying the airplane. I didn't get to fly very much this year at all, obviously, but still I got to fly it. I like hanging around it. I like being around the people like yourself that work on the airplanes or crew the airplanes. I mean, that's what it's all about. Being with the Yankee Air Museum is in many, many ways like still being in the Navy. Same camaraderie and same structure. So it's... Uh, it's a great opportunity and continues to be a great opportunity for me. I'm proud to be part of it, a very small part of it. So, if you had unlimited money, a huge free hangar, and a time travel machine, what three aircraft would you buy? Oh boy. Well, the first one I would buy is a North American F-86 Sabre. Because when I was a young boy, younger than you, during the Korean War, that was the frontline fighter. And there was a, uh, I was living in Pittsburgh at the time, and there was a, either a guard or an Air Force Reserve outfit at the Greater Pittsburgh Airport. Every once in a while, we'd see airplanes. Uh, and I have no idea why we would see airplanes on trailers going back and forth to that uh, airfield. And when I'd see that, it was like seeing a rocket ship. And that was that's a great airplane. A very simple, uh, North American built great airplanes. In fact, when I was flying at GM, I had the opportunity to fly the Sabreliner, which was basically a passenger version of the Sabre jet, meaning it had basically the same wing. And that would be one that I would buy. Um, Everyone wants to say a P-51 Mustang, so I guess I'll say a P-51 because that's a fantastic airplane. And I'd like the, the F-8 Bearcat, the ultimate of the Grumman piston-driven uh, World War II fighters. A great airplane, the best of all the airplanes, but it never saw combat. So if that would an airplane, that would be the have. Yeah, the P fifty one is the P fifty one F eighty six are I think by far some of the most famous designs that North American has ever built. Other than like the B twenty five and other stuff like that. So thank you for coming on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's nice talking with you. I'm encouraged that a young man like you hopefully represents a lot of young people who are interested in flying. Uh, 
I was looking at your list, which I have here, and uh, you would ask uh, these questions, but uh, oh, one funny one is, did you ever have a call sign? <laughs> because after Top Gun, everybody knew about Maverick and Goose and all those guys. Uh -huh. Well, first of all, you never pick your own call sign. Because if everybody picked their own call sign, they'd all be called killer or something like that. It's usually for no good reason. Somebody will start calling you something. Maybe it's something you did stupid or whatever, but that, that would stick. When I was flying T-28s, one of the guys in the squadron was from Louisiana. And I don't know if Howard was too hard for him, but he started calling me Hobart. I have no idea why. He started calling me Hobart. Well, before he knew it, it stuck. And to this day, there are guys who still call me Hobart. When somebody calls me on the phone and says, hey, Hobart, I know right away it's somebody from the Navy because it followed me to the P3s. It followed me at the Selfridge. And I had some good friends with whom I flew in reserves flying at GM, so it even followed me to GM. So when Top Gun came out, 1986, my son Bill was nine years old. And he must have been talking at school one day about the movie with his friends. And I don't know how the subject might have come up that his dad was a naval aviator. So he comes running home and he said to me, Dad, Dad, what was your call sign? What was your call sign? Well, I'm sure he wanted me to say something like Maverick or Iceman or something like that. Uh -huh. When I said Hobart, he looked at me like, no, that can't possibly be your call sign. <laughs> I can't go back to school and tell my friends my dad's call sign is Hobart. Well, you know, the funny thing is, my son is the commanding officer of the 810 squadron out at Selfridge. And when he got recruited by the guard in 19, or excuse me, 2002 and started flight training, I made myself pretty obvious around that place. And the guys in the squadron started calling me Hobart. So even to this day, I go out there, those 810 guys call me Hobart. So, so that's fun. Uh, the last thing is your advice for a young person like yourself. Uh, well, you're obviously doing the right things now. But I, whenever I talk to a young person about flying in particular, not necessarily in the military or whatever, a career in flying has to be something that you really want to do. It's not something, oh, I think I'll try this. Well, no, that's not going to work because there's no easy way to the end. If you're doing it as a civilian, uh, you're going to be living in a shoebox and not making much money and flying around the pattern of Cessna 152, just building up flight time. And that can be frustrating and exhausting. The military is a great way to go but it has its drawbacks too, long separations from the family. It's very demanding flight training. And I say that not just because I got through it, but when my son got in the flight training, many, many, many years after I was in it, I realized how much more sophisticated and demanding it had become. So uh, the person that wants to do it has to really want to do it be single-minded. And as I would tell my son, Bill, his call sign is Disco. I would tell Disco, keep your eye on the prize because 
as a young person, there's so many ways to get distracted from it that uh, many who think they would like to, like to do it find out that they really didn't want to enough. My son, I bought a Piper Cub in 1984. Bill was six years old. And for many, for a long time, I could not go flying by myself because as soon as he sensed that I was heading for the airport, he'd chase after me. We'd go flying. So my goal was to solo him before he was 16. Even though it's illegal, I still wanted to do it. And he had all the skills, but he didn't have the attention. And there's no way I was going to take that drastic step and turn him loose with the airplane unless I was 100% convinced that he was going to have a positive outcome. So it was sometime after he was 16 before he finally got his act together, and I did solo him. But it's easy to get distracted by other things for a young person. And it's hard, you know, somebody like you that really seems focused on it, who knows, it might be something come along the line that you get equally enthusiastic about. So you might be making some either conscious or unconscious decisions. But the bottom line is, if you want to fly, you have to really want to do it. And I'll say again, it beat working for a living. So if I would encourage anyone and everyone to do it because it was a great, uh, I never confused what I did with work. I used to make the guys at GM mad when I would say that, but come on, we're flying fantastic equipment all over the world. We're well paid and treated very well. How can you confuse, how can you confuse that with work? So anyway, well, I enjoyed talking with you, Austin. You're a fine young man. I look forward to seeing you uh, at the airport. I will say, since you're a 25 crewman, I'm anxious to hear what happened to that old glory B-25 that had an accident. Did you hear about that? No, I did not. I think it was down in Texas. Uh, they did an off-field emergency landing. Uh, just the three crewmen were aboard. Nobody was killed, and at least one of the guys walked away from the airplane. No major injuries. It would be interesting to see what happened. I'm suspicious right away when an airplane, a multi-engine airplane, goes down and there's no fire. Uh -huh. What does that tell you? Might not have had much fuel on the airplane. So, right. I hope, and I hope that's not the case. And even like some of the stuff that happened with the Collins Foundation B-17, it's caused, I know the maintenance schedule this past year has been amped up considerably to check more stuff and to be more safety conscious so something like that does not happen. Well, it's so easy. And this happens in every flying operation, airlines, military, you name it. When things are going along smoothly, it's easy to say, well, we'll cut this corner, that corner. Subconsciously, you do it. And before long, it builds up and it'll turn around and bite you. Not, not making any judgment on that B-25 because I have no idea what happened to it. But the investigation with the Collings Foundation has really been amazing because I always thought that was a very well-funded, highly professional operation. But obviously there were some major flaws in the way they were operating. You probably talked with Angel, the maintenance guy there. Yeah, several times. Yeah, he was the first guy on the scene of the accident. 
and he has some very frank things to say about what he thought. So, unfortunate. Yeah, it was pretty sad. So, thanks again for coming on today. I appreciate your time. Well, it was nice. I enjoyed talking with you. I always like talking about airplanes and flying. You might have figured that out. <laughs> Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Huh? When I was a boy about your age, living in Ohio, there was a guy who lived two streets away from us who built a Smith mini plane. Do you have any idea what a Smith mini plane is? It's like a pits, a single single a single seat pits. It was not quite the performance that a pits was. They had 85 horsepower engines or something. Well, that airplane would fly over the neighborhood all the time. And I was always enamored with that little airplane. Well, years later, I had my Piper Cub. My son and I flew it down to Youngstown from Michigan to that airport. And that's where that little mini plane was based. And when I showed up with the Cub, the guy that owned the mini plane asked me if I wanted to fly it. And of course, yes. And I, I didn't pay much attention to the condition of the airplane or anything. Started up, let's go. And that was a big thrill for me to have a chance to fly that airplane that I had seen fly over the house so many times when I was a young boy. And imagining what it would be like to fly and to actually get to fly it. When I took off, spontaneously, I yelled out, yes. But when I landed, my dad and my brother who were on the ground said they could hear me. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was good. That was it's what aviation is all about, those stories and other stuff like that. If you have time, I'll tell you one other thing. We're talking about making yourself heard from an airplane. The Cub, it's springtime. Uh, my kids are in grade school. We're living in Canton. The airplane was based at Metatone. If you flew south and on downwind on a, for runway 36, you could fly it down far enough that you'd overfly the grade school down there. So and flying, and I noticed that the kids are out at recess. So I fly down over the school, and I had done this many times, not over the school, but over in neighborhoods and whatever. Pull the power back, and you can yell at people on the ground. They can hear you. So I get over the school, and I pull the power back. Now, I know my son's down there somewhere, but I can't see which one he is, but I pull the power back, and I yelled, hey, Bill then put the power up and went to the airport. When I get to the airport, the airport manager is waiting for me. And he said, were you down over Miller School? And I thought, well, there's no sense lying about it. He knows I was, so I said, yes. He said, we got a call from a woman who lives next to the school. She, she said she saw an airplane fly over the school. She heard the engine quit, and then she heard the pilot yelling for help. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, really? Did she say that the engine started up again? And besides, what good would it do to yell for help, right? <laughs> <laughs> he, he said, well, stay away from Miller School. I said, okay, I'll stay away from Miller School. So that was pretty funny. The pilot was yelling for help. Okay. okay, again, thank you, Austin. Good luck with your career. I'll be Thanks. watching you.